So, uh, last week we began this work on prophetic grappling. <coughs> and I made a lot of introductory comments in order to try and get people interested in the topic, although it's a little bit different than what you're probably accustomed to. Uh, so I can't really repeat them, but I hope that if you missed the first session and you care to hear the rest, you can go back. Inshallah. Um, so listen. So now we're going to start this chapter on. It's called Part Two: Martial Warriors Amongst the Companions of the Prophet Martial Warriors Amongst the Companions of the Prophet Uh, it's kind of nice, so I'm going to read it. Actually, I'll skip a little bit. So, uh, basically he starts off this chapter by trying to give a imagery of the companions of the Prophet them kind of like preparing for battle and uh, wrestling with one another and the Prophet them observing it. And uh, he says, at this point, the Prophet Muhammad them had by this point received a sealed letter from Mecca sent by his uncle Abbas warning him of an army of 3,000 men heading towards Medina. By the time the letter was received, the Prophet understood that the army had already made considerable progress and following a consultation with his companions to engage in battle, he readied himself for war. The companions now regretting their recommendation to the Prophet and taking the fighting outside of Medina lined up and looked on in awe and veneration with his turban wound tightly around his helmet a breastplate over a coat of mail and a leather sword belt the prophet them, appeared in his warrior best memorably remarking it is not befitting of a prophet once he has put on his armor to take it off until god has judged between him and his enemies it's an epic scene in the seerah of the prophet them, that before the battle of Uhud. Then the Prophet them took shura from the companions, took their advice and said, do you think we should stay in Medina and defend from Medina? Or should we go out and meet them in battle outside Medina? And so some of the, subhanAllah, there's a lot of lessons in this, so, but we won't go into all of them. But some of the younger companions of the Prophet them, they had just come off the battle of Badr, everyone's excited, right? So some of the younger companions are like, no, we should go and ride and meet them. Let's ride out the city and meet them. We don't need to wait here in Medina and like wait for these people to come to us. We're going to go out, right? And some of the older companions were like, no, we should stay in Medina. You know, this is a city. It's never been, uh, like it's never been violated. It's going to be protected. We're strong here. Let's stay in Medina. We don't need to ride out, you know, in this battle. And they had a little back and forth. And when they voted, they they, they basically, in their shura, they decided to go out to ride out and meet the enemy in the battle of Uhud. That's how it ends up in Uhud, which is outside Medina, right? So uh, after after this had happened, <coughs> then the Prophet them, he took the shura, they decided they're gonna go out. He goes into his home, he puts his army his 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 clothes on, right? Puts his mail on, he puts his armor on, he puts his helmet on, like they described in this description. And then when he comes out, while he was gone, the companions had discussed with each other a little bit further. And they kind of said like, it kind of felt like the Prophet felt like it would be better if we stayed here. But he went with what we said, right? 
So they were kind of second guessing it a little bit. So then they brought that, they mentioned that to him, but he had come out now in his armor. And this is when he told them the statement of, uh, it's not befitting for a prophet to take his armor off once he's put it on until Allah decides in the matter. Like we're, we're going out, we made the decision to go to battle, we're going to battle. There's no going back now. Uh, so then they, they rode out to Medina and I mean uh, out to Uhud and Uhud. Uh, before Uhud happened actually, the Prophet noticed that a handful of younger companions were present and he ordered them to go home. And they protested, right? So like, you had some 15 year olds, some 16 year olds, they were, they were gonna ride out to battle, right? I mean, let's be honest, in the time of the Prophet some 15 year olds are getting married too, right? So like 15 year olds, 16 year olds are getting married they probably were working. They were doing a lot of other things. So when it's time for battle, they want to go to the battle with the Prophet But he, he sees them and he tells them to go back. But amongst them, there was a uh, young archer who was very talented named Rafia ibn Khadij. I don't know if it's Rafia or Rafia. It doesn't give the indication here. But he was permitted to fight. So of course what happens, right? So one of the young guys, the Prophet tells him, you can stay because you're like a really good archer. So other people start to complain, right? So one of them, he says, Samurai ibn Jundud, he said uh, he was a wrestler. So he's like, Ya Rasulullah, you let this guy stay because he's a good archer. But if him and I wrestle, I can take him. <laughs> so I should be able to stay. So the Prophet was like, okay, then wrestle. Like, let me, let me see it. And they wrestled and he, he did defeat him. So he's like, okay, you can stay too. And the rest of them had to go back to their families, right? But these two were, they, they showed that they had a particular uh, uh, skill set that would enable them to stay for the battle. So uh, he goes through now and he mentions some of the different companions of the Prophet and what was said about them in terms of their warrior capabilities. So regarding Abu Bakr, Addressing the people, Ali ibn Abi Talib, when asked about who displayed the most courage amongst the companions during the Battle of Badr, he said, The most courageous person is Abu Bakr. We had constructed a shed. That's a big, of course, always when you hear something, it matters who you're hearing it from, right? So, like, if someone who doesn't really know says, Oh, yeah, that person's a great scholar, you're like, Okay, I mean, it's nice that you like them, but I don't really know if they're a great scholar or not, you know? But if a great scholar comes and says, like, this person is very knowledgeable, then you're like, oh, they're really knowledgeable. Like, you, you would know. You know what I mean? So, in this case, Ali ibn Abi Talib, which we'll come to, he was a great warrior. So he's saying, they asked him, who's the most courageous person? He said, Abu Bakr is the most courageous. So, like, it really means something. Uh, he said, we had constructed a shed for Rasulullah during the Battle of Badr, and then asked who would remain with Rasulullah so that the mushrikun do not attack him. By Allah, whenever an enemy even drew close to us, Abu Bakr was there with his sword drawn near the head side of Rasulullah and he attacked anyone who dared to attack the Prophet He certainly was the, great, was the bravest of people. None of us dared to go <coughs> close to Rasulullah except for Abu Bakr. He would hit one person, wrestle with another, shake someone else, and he said, shame on you, will you kill a man for, for saying, Allah is my Rabb. Allah is my Rabb. So this is description of Sayyidina Abu Bakr and his bravery. Next is Umar ibn Khattab. He doesn't spend a whole lot of time on each of these. I did just get a, get a taste. Next is Umar ibn Khattab Amongst the most capable of the senior companions was undoubtedly the stellar Umar ibn Khattab. Umar had a commanding presence 
and was not only tall, strong, and athletic, but also a formidable wrestler and imbued martial conduct. Ambidextrous, Omar's reputation as a grappler saw him regularly contest the strong men of Arabia at the renowned Sukh al-Uqad. Omar, while known for his just ways and, abs uh, and abstemiousness, was respected and feared by the leaders of Quraysh, and ultimately, through his conversion, provided reassurance and confidence to the small early Muslim community. This opened the doors to the public call of Islam. His fearlessness, imposing nature, uh, his fearless, imposing nature was no better encapsulated than in the endorsement of the Prophet Wasallam, who said, O son of Khattab, by the one in whose hand is my soul, whenever Satan sees you taking a path, he will only but take another. So, not only was Omar so strong physically and spiritually that he scared the enemies of Islam, he even scared Shaitan. Like Shaitan will come and go a different way if he sees Omar Omar is also the one who, when people were making the hijrah, the immigration from Mecca to Medina, uh, most people went kind of like uh, quietly, you know, they kind of snuck out, made their way from Mecca to Medina. Omar went out to the people of Mecca and he called all of them. And he basically told them like, if you want your husband, if you want your wives to become widows, and you want your children to become orphans, then I'm going right now from Mecca to Medina, and if you want to try to stop me, come and try to stop me. <laughs> so Omar was, uh, you know, he had a way about him. Ali ibn Abi Talib, upon the revelation of the verse and warned the nearest people of your clan, the Prophet gathered Banu Abdul Muttalib for a meal in the hope of conveying his message to his closest family members. O sons of Abdul Muttalib, I know of no Arab who has come to his people with a nobler message than mine. This is now the statement of the Prophet I bring you the best of this world and the next. God has commanded me to call you unto him. Which of you then will help me in this and be my brother, my executor, and my successor among you? The prolonged silence was broken by the voice of a 13-year-old boy who said, O Prophet of God, I will be your helper in this. This was Ali ibn Abi Talib. So like, imagine the Prophet gets this command to warn his close family. He warns his close family. There are all these adults in the gathering. And Ali's like, I'll be the one. I'm the one, Ya Rasulullah. In front of all of his relatives, all of his family members, everyone who's not accepting the message, and he stands up, he says, I'm the one, Ya Rasulullah. This young boy was to grow in the household of the Prophet and later become one of Islam's most exemplary and sagacious warriors. He was Ali ibn Abi Talib. Ali was born 10 years before the first revelation of the Quran and delivered inside the Kaaba. Despite being of average height, he was powerfully built with a large beard. His shoulders were broad, the bones of which are described as the bones of a lion. And there was no difference between his forearm and his upper arm. An impressive soldier and ardent wrestler, he fought valiantly in all of the military campaigns of the Messenger of Allah with the exception of Tabuk. He was married to Fatima, the daughter of the Messenger of God, who bore him two sons, Hassan and Hussein. They're coming next. On the day of the Battle of Khaybar, the Prophet gave Ali the standard, you know, like the banner. The honor of carrying the Muslim army flag during the battle was only reserved for the elite amongst the companions of the Prophet. It was narrated from Abdullah bin Ahmed ibn Hanbal from Jabir that when the Prophet gave the standard to Ali on the day of Khaybar, he quickly said to them, Join me until we reach the castle, where he tore the castle door from its hinges and off the earth. Then 70 men set upon him. He defended himself from them. 
it's very important, it's not mentioned here, but it's very important to remember in the story of Sayyidina Ali, that the Prophet also gave him a particular wild. The Prophet gave Sayyidina Ali a particular dhikr that would make him strong. So it's important to recall, like, some of these things, they don't always get weaved together. It's important to bring it together a little bit. Do you guys remember the situation, right? That Sayyidina Ali and Sayyidina Fatima, they had like a very, they didn't have very much. And so Sayyidina Fatima had to work a lot and her hands were getting tired and Sayyidina Ali would care, he would do basically labor, right? He would do labor jobs to bring a little bit of money in to help his family and stuff. Because whatever job you do, as long as it's halal and you're supporting your family, it's honorable. It's very important that people remember that. Like it's, it's only dishonorable if your income is haram. Then it's dishonorable. But everything else is honorable. It's very honorable to, to, for example, be like a custodian in a school and clean up after people. It's very honorable to um, do whatever job it might be that sometimes in the eyes of people is considered to be dishonorable. As long as it's bringing in halal income, it's very honorable. And so Sayyidina Ali used to do whatever he needs to do. He's carrying things, he's taking things, whatever. So they went to the Prophet they would send them and they were like, Ya Rasulullah, you know, or slavery was a thing. They're like, next time we have a battle or something, if you get some servants and slaves, like, can you let us have one? And he said, no. <laughs> you know, he was like, no, I'm not going to give you something before I give other people something. Other people need it more than you need it. You know? And uh, so they left. And they say that night they went, they went home and they were in their, they were resting at home, like laying in bed, basically. And the Prophet them asked permission to come in. And they told him he can come in. And they were in bed. And they went to get up and stuff. He was like, no, just stay where you are. And they said, we came down and the Prophet, the Prophet he came and he sat between us to the point that we could feel the coolness of his feet on our body. Like, you just sit down with them. <laughs> you know? He sits down with them. He's going to talk to them. And he's like, you know, you guys, this thing you asked me, can I tell you something that would, give, would be more beneficial to you than a servant who can help you in the house? And they said, of course, Ya Rasulullah And he said, every single night when you go to sleep, say SubhanAllah 33 times, and say Alhamdulillah 33 times, and say Allahu Akbar 34 times. And they were like, okay, Ya Rasulullah He told them, this is better for you than a servant. This is better for you than a maid. This is better, SubhanAllah 33 times, Alhamdulillah 33 times, Allahu Akbar 34 times. And it said about Sayyidina Ali, he never left him. Every single night for the rest of his life, he made this wird, special wird. You know, from the ultimate sheikh, special wird. Make this every single night, it's going to be better for you. So he did it. So when, when Ali comes, it says in the story that Ali told them, follow me. And he went to the door of the castle and he ripped the door of the castle off of the castle. That's what this just said, right? <laughs> if you didn't catch it, you know. He said, join me until we reach the castle where he tore the castle door from its hinges and off the earth. Then 70 men came upon him and he defended himself from them. So this is like a very, uh, you don't just get that from wrestling in this, in the, together, growing up wrestling. Of course that would help, but there's something else going on there as well, which is really, really important. And all of the Muslim victories, maybe it's a side point, but it's important to know. And all of the Muslim victories and all of these things, there were also side things going on. It wasn't just like, and I don't mean side things, I mean, by side things, I mean the spiritual side of things was very serious. It wasn't just like, Oh, we need to lift weights and train and then we're going to go to the battle and we're going to win. Or we need to be the best in technology and all of a sudden the Muslims are going to become advanced. 
And if we could just graduate more doctors and more engineers, all of our problems will be solved. No, all of your problems won't be solved. All of your problems are solved by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You know, look at the history, it's very interesting. You know, like this last Ottoman Sultan who, who refused to give up uh, Palestine to the Zionists. Have you ever seen the letter he wrote to his sheikh? It's really interesting. You know, he had like a sheikh who didn't actually, who was I think in Sham at that time. And he wrote him the letter. And he's like, my sheikh, I just want you to know that like the dhikr that you gave me to do, I'm continuing in my dhikr. And I want you to know that they tried to do everything against me and they tried to plot against me and they tried to scheme against me. And I refused to sell out Palestine to the, to the Zionists. You know, I don't care what they do to me. But he said, like, this is a sheikh. He sends him a letter, he talks to him and stuff like that. You've seen, like, the Ijazah, written by Imam al-Zabidi, who was, like, one of the great scholars of Islam, to the Ottoman Sultan. The Sultan asked him for Ijazah. He's like, can I get Ijazah? Here's this. Here's the whole thing is there. You can find them and read them. I think Salah al-Din was just, like, Salah al-Din by himself. Salah al-Din was supported and aided by all of the uh, entire generation of the students and sheikhs who were trained by Sheikh Abdul Qadir Jilani It wasn't just like, you know, we're going to become Salah al was raised by Nur al-Din Zinki and by his uncles and his relatives and he learned how to play polo and was a great horseman and stuff No, there was, if you read his biography, you'll see it There was weird, there was like dhikr that Sheikh Salah al was given You make this every single day You say this all the time, he would never leave it The armies of Salah al would go into battle reading books of hadith Like they, there's someone assigned, we're going to ride out with the army they read the books of Hadith. Like they understood. If you're going to win these battles, you win these battles by bringing these things together. Yeah, you learn all of that other stuff. But you got to do these other things too. So these people were great warriors, not only because like they were great warriors and they were raised in a difficult place. It's true. It's part of it. But they were great warriors because they were also raised on the hands of Rasulullah Hassan ibn Ali was the eldest child of the Prophet's daughter Fatima and Ali ibn Abi Talib, born with the adhan and iqamah being recited softly into his ears and named by none other than Rasulullah himself. See, he got it. See the way he introed him? He introed him, he got it. Allahumma salli Sayyidina Muhammad. As a toddler, he was seen in and around Masjid al-Nabawi, playfully climbing upon the Prophet during prayer. Ikrimah ibn, ibn Abbas. Anyways, I don't know. That might be a mistake. So the Messenger of Allah said, used to carry Al-Hasan on his shoulders. A man once said, what a blessed mount you are upon, dear child. And the Prophet said, what a blessed rider. <laughs> That's beautiful, right? So the Hassan is on the shoulders of the Prophet ﷺ. The man comes and tells him, Hassan, like, it's a beautiful thing that you're riding. ﷺ, the Prophet ﷺ. And the Prophet said, what a blessed rider. There's many narrations about Satan and Hassan, actually. The Prophet ﷺ said about a Hassan that maybe this son of mine will be the cause for uniting between two great groups of the Muslims. Like he'll bring two great groups of the Muslims together. We don't need to hash all that out right now, but it's very important. And him and Hussein, they used to wrestle together in my Kamar. And Hussein ibn Ali, his younger brother, Hussein, younger than Hassan, was born having the blessed saliva of his grandfather placed in his mouth and named on the seventh day by him in the month of Shaban, in the fourth year of the migration. Hussein is said to have resembled the Messenger of Allah physically and performed the pilgrimage 25 times by foot. 
<laughs> From the hedge, 25 times by foot. OBIP 10. Endowed with courage from childhood, both brothers would often be found wrestling in front of the Messenger of Allah, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Hassan and Hussein were wrestling before the Messenger of Allah, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. The Messenger of God was saying, Come on, Hassan. Fatima asked, O Messenger of God, why do you say, Come on, and Hassan? He replied, Jibril is saying, Come on, Hussein. <laughs> Jibril is saying, Come on, Hussein. The Prophet Sallallahu was saying, Come on, Hassan. It's interesting, actually. SubhanAllah. I wonder, like, uh, that's really interesting. Sometimes you wonder, like, there's a, there, because things happen for a reason, right? So why would the Prophet them be the one encouraging on Hassan and say that Jibril is the one encouraging on Hussein? That's it's very interesting. Nothing is more intense than seeing the sight of sibling rivalry and nothing endears the heart more than the affection of grandparents. That's a beautiful statement. Hamza bin Abdul Muttalib. Hamza. Hamza. Another member of the household of the Prophet and widely considered one of the greatest wrestlers among the Arabs was the paternal uncle of the Prophet Hamza ibn Abdul Muttalib. He's his uncle, but he's the same age, right? We don't have to explain this one yet. Maybe in another generation of Islam in America, we might have to explain this one. But we're still in the generation of people who understand the idea of having uncles who are younger than you, or like the same age as you, nephews who are older than you, stuff like that. So when you have really big families, it happens. Hamza and the Prophet were roughly the same age, even though he's his uncle. When Abu Jahl ridiculed his blessed nephew and his message, Hamza took it upon himself to take physical retribution, fearlessly striking his own uncle with his bow amid all the tribal leaders. This altercation forced Hamza to take introspective stock of his otherworldly life and promptly led him to the house of an Arqab where he accepted the faith of his, nep his nephew preached. He fought valiantly in the Battle of Badr and killed Utbah and Rabia in single combat. The story of Hamza is really interesting. It's really important, actually. Now, because these two, they were raised together, Hamza and the Prophet They were very, very close. But Hamza doesn't accept the message immediately. Right? He accepts the message at this, at this moment, which is he goes out to uh, hunt. They said he used to go and hunt lions and like wrestle with lions and stuff like that. Hamza means lion. So it's like a lion versus a lion. So he comes back and one woman tells him, she says, oh, the things they said to your nephew today, they were really horrible. And he says, oh, really? And he gets kind of like, you know, he kind of like, his izza kicked in. And he goes over to them and he says, you said this to my nephew, such and such. And he hits Abu Jahl in the face with his bow. He tells him, you said all of this to him? I'm on what he's on. What are you going to do now? Abu Jahl is like, uh, it was like one of those moments, what are you going to do? Nobody did anything. They were like, just leave it. Because Hamza was Hamza. But then he like, they say that he went home afterwards and he's like, wait a second. I just said that I'm a Muslim. And I didn't really think this through. <laughs> you know? Like, you didn't really think it through. And that's a real thing. You know, like up to today, I've heard stories of people who are like this. Like, you know, their friends were Muslim. Their family was Muslim or whatever. And like something went down and they took a stance with them and they're like, I'm with that too. And then afterwards they're like, wait a second, is that, do I really believe that? So Hamza went home, he's like, do I really believe this? He decided that he did, and he went and affirmed it to the Prophet um, So sometimes people need a little bit of time. I mean, one of the lessons in this, sometimes people need a little bit of time. 
Hamza is also the one who, when Sayyidina Umar an, came to the home and he wanted to become a Muslim, but remember when Omar left the house, he was intending to kill the Prophet right? And he found his sister and like he was redirected, he found his sister, he became a Muslim. He said, where's the Prophet? They said he's in this house, he went to the house. He still has the sword on his back, right? Like he went out with the sword to kill the Prophet. He shows up at the house now with the sword strapped and uh, Hamza, they're like, well, should we, what should we do? It's Omar at the door. And Hamza was like, let him in. If he wants good, we'll give him good. And if he wants to hurt the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi I'll cut his head off. So Hamza, <laughs> straight, this is the way we're going to handle the situation. So, you know, these people were, they're good people to have around you. MashaAllah. Hamza was martyred, martyred in the Battle of Uhud on the 3rd of Shawwal when he was 59 years old. He was standing in front of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi fighting with two swords and shouting, I am the Lion of Allah. Oof. Man, what a scene. That's the way to go out. May Allah give us good endings. May Allah give us good endings. Don't humiliate us in our ending. May Allah give us honorable good endings. Khalid ibn Walid, the grappling abilities of Khalid ibn Walid, who was one of the greatest army commanders to ever have lived, are renowned. He served under Abu Bakr and Omar. It was under his military leadership that Arabia, for the first time in history, was united under a single political entity, the Caliphate. The Messenger of God said, What an excellent slave of God, Khalid ibn Walid, one of the swords of God unleashed against the, un unleashed against the unbelievers. His impressive foresight strategies and victories are studied to this day by Western military institutions such as the United States Army War College. Khalid's grappling skills were established early on in his youth. Here's a passage. The boys were well matched of about the same age. They were in their early teens. Both were tall and lean, and newly formed muscles rippled on their shoulders and arms as their sweating bodies glistened in the sun. The tall boy was perhaps an inch taller than Khalid, and their faces were so alike that one was often mistaken for the other. Khalid threw the tall boy, but this was no ordinary fall. As the tall, tall boy fell, there was a distinct crack, and a moment later, the grotesquely twisted shape of his leg showed that the bone had, bone had broken. The stricken boy lay motionless on the ground and Khalid stared in horror at the broken leg of his friend and nephew. It was, uh, you know, it was his nephew. In the course, in the course of time, the injury healed and the leg of the tall boy became whole and strong again. He would wrestle again and be among the best of wrestlers. And the two boys would remain friends. But while they were both intelligent, strong, and forceful by nature, neither had patience or tact. They were to continue to compete with each other in almost everything that they did. The reader should make a mental note of this tall boy, for he was to play an important role in the life of Khalid. He was the son of Al-Khattab, and his name was Omar. Interesting. Rukana, Rukana ibn Abi Yazid. In understanding and covering the grappling prowess of the Prophet we are indebted to the legendary strongman of Arabia, Rukana ibn Abi Yazid, a capable man yet only conversant in the physical. He was only conversant in the physical, right? Some people are like that. There's only one way to talk to them. He was defeated emphatically by the Messenger of Allah on several occasions. His personal account in the annals of Islamic martial history provides an insight into a noble man humbling himself, able to embrace and see divine truth through the war of attrition that played out between him and the Messenger of Allah. The last one he mentions is Samurai ibn Jundub. As we mentioned, he was considered among the most brave and noble youth of the companions of the Prophet In keeping with the normative traits of young men at the time who from an early age were taught to ride, 
wield a sword, use a bow, travel hard, and sleep rough, finding their food where they could. It's a great statement, subhanAllah. From an early age, they were taught to ride, wield a sword, use a bow, travel hard, and sleep rough, finding their food where they could. Samura's tremendous grappling skills convinced the Messenger of Allah to allow him to fight at Uhud. He fought in later campaigns and died in 59 after Hijra and Basra, Iraq. Now he moves on to women warriors. Women warriors of the companions of the Prophet. Many of the women in the time of the Prophet they weren't actually in battle. They would handle like the nursing needs of wounded soldiers. They would watch after, of course, the children when everyone else was at battle. They would watch after the homes. They would be like the last line of defense. There's nothing wrong in that, you know. Uh, but other than other than them, um, what is clear from the numerous accounts relating to women's bravery in combat and battle was the general acceptability among the Muslims for women to engage in martial arts and indeed fight when necessary, but also their own desire to learn and participate with many of the female companions being forthright and deeply courageous. In fact, in Ibn Sa'd's At-Tabaqat, in a volume entirely dedicated to the women of Medina, there is not a single rebuke on the part of the Prophet against women and their martial conduct. Far from the dismissive distortions one reads in modern media, the following lend plentiful examples for the pursuit of martial training and a healthy physical culture amongst Muslim women. We read the likes of Asma bint Abi Bakr who fought at the Battle of Yarmouk against a pressing Roman army under the banner of her blessed father, Abu Bakr, in 13 after Hijra. She was also known to carry a dagger on her person in self-defense against the thieves of Medina as theft was rife at the time. She would handle her own. <laughs> I wonder if she's coming. She's not in here? She's a very interesting figure, actually, Asma. Very strong. Samad is the one that used to smuggle them goods, right? During the Hijra. She used to smuggle the goods in the Hijra. And she also um, raised her son. Her son is who? Huh? Abdullah bin Zubair. Her son is Abdullah bin Zubair. Her husband is Zubair. And uh, who didn't get mentioned either. Obviously, it's a brief book, but there's a lot of people that could have been mentioned. Uh, but she raised, she was very strong with her son. You know, Abdullah bin Zubair was a great warrior. He, he didn't submit to some of the uh, ruling issues at his time after the Khulafa al-Rashidun. And he had like a resistance in Mecca. And she made it very clear to him that rather than capitulating to the forces that be, it would be much greater for him to die as a martyr and to be killed and even if that meant that he was going to be tortured, she was like, yeah, you should just do that. Because afterwards, you're just going to die, and you're not going to remember any of it, and you'll be with Allah. <laughs> you know, so she was, Asma was really, uh, she was really, really something. The first is Khawla bint al-Azwar. Khawla, the renowned traditionist and historian al-Waqidi documents an impressive account of a mysterious warrior seen advancing ahead of Khalid ibn Walid and his army towards the Roman encampment to rescue the captured companion Dirar following the siege of Damascus in 13 after Hijra under the caliphate of Abu Bakr. Khalid's veteran eyes noticed the rider's behavior and appearance projected a kind of wisdom and the riding style showed bravery. Here's the quote. 
The mysterious warrior pounced on the enemy like a mighty hawk on a tiny sparrow in an attack that wreaked havoc in the Roman lines and by perpetrating a massacre penetrated to their very center. It was like lightning striking the head of two or four youths, then burning to ashes another five or seven, and then flashing yet again. Reaching the center, the warrior displayed clear signs of frustration and anxiety, and then began attacking again, ripping the Christian lines apart and advancing until the Muslims lost sight of this champion, who all the while was growing ever more anxious. I wonder what that translation is. What's anxious here? I always wonder. Many of the Muslim soldiers mistook the rider as Khalid until he himself arrived moments later. Khalid and his men aligned in rank order, poised to join the fight, when again the lone rider single-handedly attacked several Romans at one time. When they finally rallied the rider into the Muslim lines, Khalid's numerous requests to uncover the identity of this warrior was met with silence. Because if you're wearing like a bunch of clothes, you're wearing armor, you're wearing mail, you have a helmet on, maybe you have a face cover on, right? Like nobody can really tell who you are. You're just in battle. Khalid's numerous requests to uncover the identity of this warrior was met with silence. The Muslim cavalry pushed, pressed further until finally a feminine voice replied, O commander, I have not avoided you out of disobedience, but out of modesty, for I am of those who seclude themselves behind the veil. My sorrow and broken heart forced me here. It was none other than Dirar's sister, the legend, the one who was taken captive who they were trying to rescue, right? Uh, it was his sister, the legendary Khawla. Khawla was a woman of martial combat, brave and strategic, who fought alongside Khalid and Mulid in several battles in Syria, Jordan, and Palestine. Descending from the tribe of Al-Asad, her family were among the earliest converts to Islam and could be described as something of a martial family, with her brother Dirad himself a leading general under Khalid and Mulid. Khawla was an unrivaled swordswoman, adept in riding, archery, and spear play, and fought in the Battle of Sunita Al-Aqab and Al-Ajnadayn, radiallahu ta'ala anha. So it's a culture. Remember what I was saying? It's a culture. Like you'll see, uh, she's a warrior. Why? She's a, her, all of her family were warriors, right? Who's the next person? Safiya bint Abdul Muttalib. Safiya bint Abdul Muttalib, which makes her what? Aunt of the Prophet and sister of who? Huh? Bint Abdul Muttalib. Sister of Hamza. Sister of Hamza. The courage displayed by the Sahabiyat in the face of certain death was indicative of disciplined practice and ingrained readiness. Often surpassing the men, we see in the example of Safiya bint Abdul Muttalib, the beloved aunt of the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, a strikingly bold woman who at the Battle of Uhud, upon seeing the Muslims flee and the reneging, the reneging of the only male presence, Hassan ibn Thabit, she assassinated a Jewish intruder in southeast Medina in an act of self-defense by use of a club. She was also known for the stern way she reared her son, uh, Zubair ibn Awam. <laughs> Look at the traditions, the connections. She physically disciplined him as a child in hope of making him a strong and capable man. Do not be careful, all right? Be careful how you apply these things. What worked for some people might not work for you, all right? Uh, and and the, and the companions would say that too, right? Like, uh, even in America, what worked in America 20 years ago might not work in America today. So, like, be wise and be smart and be good about it. But this was the way she did things in the harsh climate that she was in. She physically disciplined him as a child in hope of making him a strong and capable man to the extent that as a young boy, he fought with the man so fiercely that he broke the man's hand. Pregnant at the time, Sophia even carried the man home out of compassion. And when onlookers asked what happened, she replied, he fought as Zubair, 
Did you find a Zubair soft like cheese? Or dates? Or did you find him full of brats? <laughs> so she is, you know, a tough son. There's ways you can do that without being abusive, even today, right? But just don't be abusive. And each child's temperament might be a little bit different. Like some children might, you might be able to raise them in a way that makes them very strong, again, without abuse. And some children, you might, they might not lean, lend to that. So you have to try other things and maybe other ways to uh, teach them what they need to learn, inshallah. Nusayba bint Ka'b. We cannot fail to mention the great Nusayba bint Ka'b, a woman of the Ansar, and one of the two women to have sworn an oath of allegiance to the Messenger of Allah sallallahu directly at the second pledge of Aqaba. So the second pledge of Aqaba, the first pledge of Aqaba is when 12 people pledged. Then the next year they brought more, right? And there were like 70 from the Ansar, the men, and two from the women who came all the way to Mecca from Medina to pledge to the Prophet sallallahu she was an outspoken, ambitious, and truly brave woman to whom God responded when she asked the Prophet why God only addressed men and not women in the Qur'an with the beautiful verses of Surah Ahzab. This is not the right verse. This is the wrong verse. The Arabic they put is not the verse that they're trying to put. It's a mistake. It's totally a mistake. It's not even close. It's totally the wrong verse. I'll just read the English. For men and women who are devoted to God, believing men and women, obedient men and women, truthful men and women. So this verse now specifically mentioned men and women on each, each of these points. Uh, for men and women who are devoted to God, believing men and women. Obedient men and women, truthful men and women, steadfast men and women, humble men and women, charitable men and women, fasting men and women, chaste men and women, men and women who remember God often. God has prepared forgiveness and a rich reward. So she's the one who asked about this, this verse. She got her answer from Allah directly. A renowned martial artist from among the companions of the Prophet Nusayba was distinguished by her courage in defending the Messenger of God at the Battle of Uhud. Her initial role was to deliver water to the soldiers and tend to the wounded. However, upon seeing the archers disobey the command of the Prophet and leave their posts, causing the battle to sway against the Muslims, Nusayba unsheathed her sword and rushed to defend the Prophet to which he testified, the Prophet testified, which wherever I turned left or right on the day of Uhud, I saw her fighting for me. She was afflicted by 13 wounds on the day of Uhud, at the end of which the Prophet saw her and called to her son, Your mother, your mother, see to her wounds. May Allah bless you and your household. Your mother has fought better than so-and-so. When Nusayba heard what the Prophet ﷺ said, she said, Pray to God that we may accompany you in paradise. And he ﷺ said, O God, make them my companions in paradise. She participated in the battles of Uhud, Hunayn, Khaybar, Yamama, and the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. Pretty cool, pretty amazing. MashaAllah. All right, now there's a section on the bodyguards of the Prophet Sallallahu Is that the food? Food has arrived. Um, I'll try to finish this quickly because it will finish the second part, inshallah. Bodyguards of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu From the most formidable combatants amongst the companions were undoubtedly those chosen to serve as personal bodyguards of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam inside and outside of battle. This was until the revelation 
God will protect you from the people upon which he, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, no longer permitted anyone to guard him. Okay, so this is important. In the life of the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, there is a period where he had bodyguards. Right? There were lots of threats, there were assassination attempts, there were different things. The Prophet had bodyguards, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Then there's a verse that was revealed where he's um, commanded to call the people and so on. And then it says, Wallahu ya'asibuka minan nas. And Allah will protect you from the people. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam basically told his bodyguards he wasn't in need of them anymore. Number one, Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas. <coughs> Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas was from the outset a forthright and courageous man. He was one of the earliest to convert to Islam through Abu Bakr and honored as being from among the ten elect given the promise of paradise. He fought in all of the campaigns and was a renowned master archer of the companions, known for having his supplications readily answered, releasing the first arrow for the sake of Islam, and firing a thousand arrows at the Battle of Uhud. Saad was known for being Mustajab uh, al His du'as were answered. Okay. Under the caliphate of Umar ibn Khattab, Saad became governor of Kufa and led the armies in the Battle of Qadisiyah against the Persians, in which 30,000 Muslim soldiers faced a battalion of 100,000. He was the last of the emigrants to pass, died in Medina, and he was buried in Al-Baqiyah. Another of the bodyguards is Sa'd ibn Ubadah. Looks like the Sa'ds played a heavy role here. There's Sa'd ibn Abu Waqqas, Sa'd ibn Ubadah, and Sa'd ibn Mu'ad. It's interesting. His name, he is Sa'd ibn Ubadah of Dulaim, chief of Sa'id clan of the Khazraj in Medina. He accepted Islam prior to the Hijra, thus is of the Ansar and a prominent companion of the Messenger of God, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He was considered a perfect Arab due to his mastery of archery, ability to swim, and proficiency in reading and writing the Arabic language. Saad was a celebrated soldier and participated in the companions of Uhud, uh, Jandan, Khandaq, Muraisi, Khaybar, and the conquest of Mecca, Hunayn, and Ta'if. He died some five years after the passing of the Messenger of Allah. Also, is Saad ibn Mu'adh. He was the chief of Aus and of the Ansar of Medina. He accepted Islam at the hands of Musa ibn Umair which led to the immediate conversion of the entire Aus tribe. He was a formidable warrior, who on the eve of the Battle of Badr reassured the Prophet wasallam, saying, By he who has sent you with the truth, never think that we will leave you to fight alone, if it is even out of the bonds. And I take an oath with you as the head of the Ansar, you give us what, we, what you want, you collect from us what we have. You take us anywhere you want, you push us in any battle, we will defend you until our last breath. No arrow can touch you until it passes through our chest. Allah What a statement. These people had a way with words, you know? No arrow can touch you until it crosses through our chest. <laughs> we have tied a relationship of life and death with you. If you seek to cross the seas or go in it, we will follow your command and none amongst us will remain behind. We are patient in war, vicious in battle. May Allah allow you to witness from our efforts what comforts your eyes. Therefore, march forward with the blessing of Allah. This is... Uh, I mean, Saab was really something. All these people were strong. You know, Musab is the one. Remember when Musab went to Medina and he was teaching the people about Islam? And he was young. He was a young guy. And some of the people were starting to have issues with it. This is the incident where Saad became a Muslim. And they came to him and they're like, they had their spears drawn. And they're like, you need to stop, like, get out of here basically and stop causing problems. And Musab just looked at him and he was like, how about this? How about I explain to you what it is that I'm doing, and if you like it, you'll take it, and if you don't like it, I'll stop. It's like he didn't just give up, you know. Someone like stepped to him and told him, "Get out of here, we're going to kill you," and he was like, "No. How about this? You listen, and if you don't like it, 
I'll stop. But if not, you can accept it. And they sat down and he explained it to them. And they liked it and they accepted it. SubhanAllah, right? But there's like a... There's an izzah to the people. He is one of a few companions to remain on the battlefield at Ahud when Khalid ibn Walid led the counterattack. He participated in the Battle of Khandaq. That when they lost in Uhud, it was because Khalid wasn't Muslim yet. And when the archers didn't listen to the Prophet وسلم, Khalid saw the opportunity and he led the Quraysh around and he reversed the battle, right? So Saad was one of the people who remained steadfast. He participated in the Battle of Khandaq where he was afflicted with serious wounds and as a result died shortly after. It is reported in Bukhari that the Messenger of Allah, listen to this. It is reported in Bukhari that the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, said, "The throne of Allah shook at the death of Saad ibn Muhammad." Think about that. That's like, wow. The throne of Allah, subhanahu wa taala, shook at the death of Saad ibn Muhammad. Muhammad ibn Maslama, known as the Knight of God's Prophet was born 22 years prior to prophethood. He was from the Ansar and one of few to be named Muhammad in the days of ignorance. He was tall in stature and extremely dark in complexion. He fought in all the wars alongside the Prophet except Tabuk, as he was asked by the Prophet to govern Medina while he was away in battle. He was put in charge of 50 men tasked with patrolling the Muslim camp on the night of the Battle of Uhud and was later seen as one of the few who stood by the Prophet when the majority retreated. The Prophet sent Muhammad ibn Maslama with 10 other companions on an expedition to where they arrived at nightfall. While asleep at their campsite, they were surrounded by 100 men who unleashed a barrage of arrows upon them. Ibn Maslama jumped up from his sleep to fire back upon the attackers, but all 10 of the companions were murdered, leaving Ibn Maslama as the lone survivor of the onslaught. In later years, which saw great division among senior companions, Muhammad ibn Maslama was considered one of the four that was safe from tribulation due to the explicit instructions given to him by the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Interesting. He died at the age of 77. There's only three more. Then we'll eat. Zubair ibn Awam. Zubair ibn Awam was the son of Safiya bint Abdul Muttalib and thus the first paternal cousin of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. From a young age, he was renowned for his disciplined, up, his disciplined upbringing and martial capabilities. He regularly answered the call for single combat in the lead up to battles, which saw him defeat his opponents with ease. So they would go to these battles, and before the actual battle starts, they would do like little one on one battles. So he was always the one who would step up. He'd be like, I'm, I'm the one. He'd step up and he would defeat the people. He embraced Islam at a young age and was one of the ten promised paradise in this life. Physically, he was dark in complexion, extremely tall and slender, and known to wear a yellow turban, replicating the angels who assisted at the Battle of Badr. He passed away in 36 after Hijrah. It said that the angels who assisted in the Battle of Badr, when they came down and they assisted, they were wearing yellow turbans. So he, he liked that, so he would wear a yellow turban. Abu Ayyub al-Ansari Abu Ayyub Khalid bin Zayd bin Kulayb bin Thalaba al-Ansari was the first to host the Prophet in his home in Medina after he left Mecca where approximately 180 people miraculously ate from the meals prepared solely for the Prophet in Abu Bakr. The Prophet remained at the house of Abu Ayyub until Masjid al-Nabawi was built and his own houses were built. Leading a distinguished career as a military leader, Abu Ayyub fought in all the wars of prophethood and did not stay away from any battle in which the Muslims engaged from the time of Muhammad to the time of Muawiyah unless he was at the same time engaged in another battle being fought elsewhere. So the only reason he missed a battle is because he was in a different battle. Right? There's multiple fronts, so he's in the other battle. The Messenger of Allah said, he, used to, he made the dua, O Allah, stand guard over Abu Ayyub just as he spent the night standing over me. Beautiful. 
Prophet used to make beautiful du'as for people. You know, really, really beautiful. Ukasha ibn Mahsan. Ukasha was from amongst the early converts to Islam who migrated to Medina, a swordsman par excellence. Upon breaking his sword in the Battle of Badr, was famously given a wooden rod by the Messenger of God, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, which miraculously transformed into a steel blade in the midst of battle. This sword remained and was used by Ukasha in subsequent wars. He was killed in Buzava or Buzava during the reign of Abu Bakr in the 11th year after migration. Part three, inshallah, we'll cover next time, is on the objectives of sport, uh, the objectives of sports in Islam. The objectives of sports in Islam. Hopefully we'll finish that next session. And then after that, part four, is the translation of Imam Suyuti's uh, collection of hadith about wrestling. So inshallah, that will also take probably one session. And then we'll wrap up this book. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alayhi wa sallam wa sallam Alhamdulillah wa sallam Anyone have any comments or questions or anything they would like to share? Anyone feel like going to like lift weights or run or something? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you should. You should feel that. Alhamdulillah. It's a good thing to feel. Anyone else? Uh, anyone have anything? Nothing? Yes. Mm-hmm. They were very solid and very. Like, yeah. Very. Um, there's a lot of integrity. Yeah, yeah. They were. She said they were not wishy-washy people. They're very solid. There's a lot of integrity. You know. Uh, this is really important. Uh, we have to learn how to do that without being. What's amazing about the way of the Prophet is that he was, and he taught other people to be like that, without being rude, without being aggressive, without being irritating, without like, you know, posturing in certain ways and stuff like that. They just work. It's just how they work, you know? Uh, yeah. Yeah, so saying as minorities, sometimes the messaging you get is a, is a messaging of like to disappear, to kind of like not be a threat. And it's very emasculating. Um, yeah, I think this is something that we as a community, we need to think about and we should actually talk about. The reality is that our community was very, the broader culture and our community some ways good, some ways bad, was very different before 9-11. After 9-11, our community became very, very different. In some ways good, in some ways bad. But in some ways it was like, you saw people getting arrested, you saw people get prison sentences for like literally no reason. You saw like FBI raids on people's homes. You saw a whole lot of things. You saw like, the disappearance of the idea of jihad from the entirety of the discourse of the Muslims because like you had these extreme people who hijacked the understanding of it, you know? And so, and then that coincided with other broader cultural things, you know, that have made it so that, you know, especially men 
don't always act and carry themselves in a way that they used to. Uh, you know? And again, some of that is probably, there were certain things that needed some adjustment. But there were certain things that were good. Like it's good for uh, people to be strong, for them to be responsible, for them to you know take care of their own business and stuff. Like that's good. To be trustworthy, to be uh, reliable. Those are good things. Absolutely, 100%, 100%. And that's what the religion should be teaching, right? It teaches you to to be kind, to be polite, to be best-mannered, to be generous, to be everything else, and to be really strong, physically strong, intellectually strong, emotionally strong, spiritually strong, you know? And, and I think, <laughs> you know, uh, Malcolm, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, Malcolm X, our Imam. Uh, when you read his bio, his his autobiography, when you listen to his interviews, you realize, like Subhanallah, there were certain things he really understood them, and he had a gift with words that he could express things that were really profound in really simple ways. And be like, ah, oh, he got it, you know, he got it. But uh, here's one of my favorite Malcolm quotes. <laughs> he said. Be peaceful, be courteous, obey the law, respect everyone. But if someone puts his hand on you, send them to the cemetery. That's one of, that's one of Malcolm's classic quotes, you know. Uh, it summarizes it, you know, like, we're going to be nice, we're going to be courteous, we're going to be polite, we're going to be everything else. But if you're going to do that, like, you know, and... And he had a lot of good quotes around this stuff, you know, like, don't you believe in brotherhood? And he's like, I believe in universal brotherhood, but I don't believe in being a brother with somebody who doesn't want to be my brother. Like, if they're just going to treat me like this, then, you know, I'm not, it's not, I'm not going to back down from it. So it's good. To, Malcolm is worth studying. Malcolm is really important to study. And no, of course, when you study someone, you also study their context. And, you know, now we have YouTube. You have a lot of stuff that was hard to see before. Like, you should watch watch and see like the videos of people getting attacked by the police and police dogs biting them and pulling them and people being beaten and like understand the context that he was living in don't just be like oh that's really you know like it's not a good instagram quote yeah it's not a good instagram quote and if there was instagram it would have been filled with all kinds of craziness if people lived if that was there in the time that he was living in you know so understand like where people are coming from and see what he said and, and like i really think subhanallah like there's many things. He he said very short things that were really on point. You know? uh, and the the funny thing is, like you know, you say this, and I'm sure some people are very uncomfortable with this. But if you just like try to control the discomfort for a second and think about what he's saying, there's nothing wrong with what he's saying. Like be nice and be polite, and if someone tries to kill you, then you know you do what you need to do. It's not. Like, there's nothing like what's wrong with that <laughs> like people we live in america <laughs> i don't know if you're aware of this but 
It's an extremely violent place, uh, extraordinarily violent place in comparison to many other places in the world. Like it's a, this is a very violent place. So especially here, it shouldn't feel like, oh, that's a really strange thing to say. No, it's not. I mean, I remember like America teaches you different things. I remember the first night I was in Egypt, first night, first night we arrived in Cairo, you know? I didn't understand anything. We go to our place and like we're gone overseas for, we're gonna be gone for the next nine months. So like I had new shoes. And <clears throat> Fajr time comes, we arrive like shortly before Fajr. We're getting used to this place and the adhan goes off and I look out the window and I can see the minaret. You know, and I'm like, wow, that's really cool. Like I can hear the adhan of Fajr. I haven't heard that before. And like outside of inside the masjid. And like there's the minaret. I'm like, I should go to Salah, you know? So I like get down, I go down and it's a small walk, but there's like a little street. And there's like a bunch of young guys hanging out, you know? Fajr time. <laughs> haven't gone home yet. <laughs> if you know Cairo, you understand. There's a bunch of young guys, they're hanging out. They haven't gone home yet, you know? They're just hanging out. So I looked at them and I was like, I looked at them, I looked at my shoes. And I'm like, the American in me was like, I'm across the street. I'm gonna be ready to move if I need to move. And like, I'm gonna go to the masjid, right? So I. I then I walked and like nothing happened. And I realized later that like, it's totally normal in Cairo. It's not something to worry about, at least for a man. For a woman it might be different, but for a male at that time, it wasn't like something you worry about, you know? But I'm coming from America, it's like a different thing. So uh, anyways, America, this is America. We live in America. Anyone else have anything they want to share? Yes, what's up, Mishra? You mentioned something about men did not Can you, what, what did I say? I said that the men did not behave the way they were supposed to. And what well, You're saying something about post-9-11. Oh, no, I said men started. Started? Like, like in a sense that the culture has moved away from, like, if a man is actually strong, people get intimidated. Like, very simple. Just, like, stand straight, have some presence, say what you mean. Don't say things if you don't mean them. Don't speak if you don't need to. You know, like basic things. And people get intimidated. Yeah. Like the culture has changed a lot. Culture has changed a lot. Not just in this, in general. Like sometimes I'm with, uh, some, sometimes I might see, uh, maybe I'll give an example of this, but I don't, I mean, it's one of those things that's borderline, maybe I shouldn't, but I will. Um, sometimes I see Dr. Omar Farouk Abdullah. Okay, some of you know Dr. Omar. Dr. Omar is a old white man, you know, like who grew up in the South, old white man, um, who like, like they would have assignments at home for grammar and literature and stuff like that. And when you come to the dinner table, there's a little question on your table. And if you're not able to answer the question, you're not eating dinner. Like, that's, that's the American you grew up in, right? <laughs> so I've noticed that, like, amongst our generation of people, sometimes people get around Dr. Omar and they get really uncomfortable. And it's not because he's doing anything rude. Actually, he's an extremely polite person. But he's polite in a very old-school sense. And he's very, like, strong. He's very deliberate. He's very, like... And people get uncomfortable, you know? Because they're, like, they're not used to it anymore. Because it's a different generation of 
He's not rude. He's not impolite. He's not inconsiderate. He's, you know, none of these things. But he's very strong. And uh, there has been like a shift away from this for like, you know, men. Which, um, and there is, of course, like in popular culture now, there's an extreme response to that among some, like especially on the right. But now may Allah help us to find a balance. What we have in our religion is sufficient for us. We don't need to go to all these weirdos and like take their information and get inspired by them and stuff. No, what you have in your religion is sufficient. Yeah. Anyone else have anything? Sorry, dinner time? Did, were you ready here? Uh, Ayub, I'm sorry you mentioned uh, it's the same Abu, one Abu that's Turkey, right? The Mahal yes. right yeah. Very nice and uh, peaceful place. Very nice. While the Prophet is really like a city around us. Uh, Abu Ayyub is uh, Sultan. Ayyub Sultan. Yes. Look, the Turks, the Turks are beautiful people, right? They have some nice things in their culture. Right? Abu Ayyub al-Ansari, he's buried there in Istanbul. His, the neighborhood and the, the way that he's referred to is referred to as Ayyub Sultan. Ayyub Sultan, you know? Like, and one of the brothers that when we visited Istanbul, he told me, He's like, when you come, you land in the airport, he's like, just make sure you visit the Sultan of the Unseen before you visit any of the Sultans of the Seen. You know? And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, you have to go to Ayyub Sultan. Go to Ayyub Sultan, say salam, make dua, you know? And it was beautiful, actually, we went. So we came from the airport, we went there. The brother we were visiting, he lived close to there, so it was very easy to do. It was like nighttime. What was really amazing to me is that you have this neighborhood, all these people live there and stuff. And there's the markets, and there's the stores, and there's the restaurants, and everything. People go out for dinner. They, you know, they're having like a night on the town, and everyone goes and visits Ayub. Everyone goes and visits Abu Ayub. It's amazing. Like you know, like in our in our American Muslim understanding, we have sometimes weird things. You know, like the religious Muslim is the one that looks like this and they look like that, and they don't look like this and that, and so on and so forth. But you go to Ayub Sultan, and like everybody's going to Ayub Sultan. Like we literally saw families that were going out for dinner and the woman comes and she's like in a skirt, you know, it's like kind of short. And they're like, come and we're going to go visit Ayyub Sultan, we make dua. These people are all, they're all believers, you know, everyone's, they're all Muslims and like, they understand this is... It's a tradition for them, especially Ayyub, to go and visit Yeah, yeah. There wasn't a single spot over there just to go. Everyone goes. Yeah. Because they understand, like there's a blessing. <coughs> They understand there's a blessing in visiting the graves of the righteous people. And you make dua, and you don't do any weirdo stuff. You just go, you make dua, say salam, make dua, and go. But there's, these are blessed places. And even when you, like in that neighborhood, what was really interesting we found was that, uh, maybe some people have seen it, there's like little graves, little graves in the middle of the street. And because it was like there was a wali who was known in the neighborhood, there was like a righteous person who was known in the neighborhood and stuff, and they, were di they died and they were buried there. And as the neighborhood grew and these buildings went up and stuff, they refused to take away this person's burial place. So just leave them. Like, you're going down the street and there's a center divider, you know? There's this side of the street, there's this side of the street, and you look to the side and there's like a little grave. <laughs> like, subhanAllah. And you go and you read it, and you're like, who is that? It's this and this and this. And, yeah, subhanAllah. So they wouldn't, like, upend these graves when they're building around the city and things. Again, you don't have to do anything weird, but just know, like, the Prophet them encouraged us to visit graves and remember death and make dua and stuff like that. So, you know, subhanAllah, these are really interesting things, beautiful cultural things. Okay. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam Muhammad wa alayhi wa sallam subhanahu wa sallam subhanahu wa When is Madhu? It's like almost now, isn't it? A couple of minutes?
Okay, so why don't we pray Maghrib first then? Even though the food is here and stuff, but otherwise, if we go eat the food, it's going to be like an hour from now we're going to be praying Maghrib. It's going to be, I think, too late. But we won't judge you. If you want to go eat, also sometimes like, you know, if you want to go eat, go eat. But we'll make a then and pray. If you want to go get a plate, put it down on the table, write your name next to it. Maybe you're fasting, you know, whatever else it might be. Do what you want. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Sean, it usually comes up, you know, like I try to <laughs> bring that up a lot, but, but inshallah there's, there are ways that we can weave it into, inshallah.